I need to kind of tell our listeners here, Movies on the Side, this is amazing for us because we have a special guest, Kate Hawley, who was so kind when I reached out to her to uh, come on Movies on the Side, come on this podcast. I have been giddy all week thinking about this. (laughs) I want to talk less and listen more through it, but I just have to say as a little bit of a, a prelude here, Stephen and I saw The Call of the Wild. I just, I finished the movie and I looked up who the costume designer of this movie is because I was like, this is something, I love it. I love the look of this. And then when I discovered it was you, Kate, I then looked at your filmography, thought to myself, Mortal Engines, you know, the costumes were the best part of that movie. And like, I loved Crimson Peak, I am still too scared to this day to actually watch the movie, but I remember that red dress that made it look like a blood pile at the bottom. I was like, an edge of tomorrow. Like, well, thank you so much for coming on. This is absolutely great. I have to warn you that there could maybe not be two people less familiar (laughs) in general costume design and wardrobe, all of that stuff. You're not alone. Even people working with us in film don't know what wardrobe does. (laughs) Well, would it be possible to just give us what you do as a costume designer and kind of how you got into it? Well, I mean, first of all, I got into it because that's probably the easiest lead. Um, You know, my father was an opera singer in England and I we as children and I'm talking about from the age three onwards we'd travel around he worked for a company called um, English Touring Opera Opera Fall at the time and my mother was working in the wardrobe department we'd all jump in one of those sort of old you know combi vans you know that stunk to high heaven and rattle around the English countryside and and we'd sleep in the van then they'd sneak us into um, you know the bathrooms of dodgy um Airbnb, you know, whatever it was called, you know, guest houses and things on these tours. So we were kids that just sort of followed the parents and grew up with it. So until I spilt my Coca-Cola on um, Donna Elvira's costume and uh, <laughs> had to learn a bit along the way. But but I was always surrounded by a, a slightly heightened childhood, quite a dramatic childhood anyway. And my parents were always playing music. And then I think what just followed that we're always in that world. I got, you know, taken to the opera, I got taken to theatre. And so... You know, it was one of those things that I was exposed to. But I love the storytelling. I also had a mother that was a huge lover of the Norse myths and, you know, the original grim fairy tales. You can see I'm, you know, coming from quite a dark place. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, so I just grew up in that world. I think I've actually got a library book from the Streatham Library in London that I pinched at age five. It's just, you know, princesses and all that. And so it was all of that sort of stuff. And and um, later on, I, I went and joined um, my father at rehearsals and I got involved with local theatre groups and things and, and just helping with props and painting scenery from quite a young age. And someone just turned to me, one adult, and it only takes one adult in your life as a kid to inspire you a bit. And they just said, you know, you could do this as a real job. I mean, they're kind of lying because you never get paid for it when you're younger. But but it never occurred to me at that point you could. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, this is wonderful. And I, I sort of bunked school and, you know, I went to university but, you know, flogged half of that to run away to the theatre, which is the equivalent to the circus kind of dream. And um, just did it. And I, I got scholarships and studied. And I went and studied at Motley in London, this theatre design school. And that defined huge huge amount for me in terms of process and that. So that that's how I got involved. In terms of what I do as a costume designer, first thing is where is the character? You know, what age, what time, 
what social strata or what's, what do they do for a living. So you're, you're, you're trying to give as much information to the audience on a very basic level about who they are, how do they live. You say so much that, um, you know, it can even be a subtle thing about um, the heel of a shoe. You know, they're people that look after their shoes and, and you look around you all the time. I'm always looking at people. I think we're partly forensic scientists and psychologists. We sort of have to have a number of disciplines in the approach. But if you look at, um, if you go down to the city area or whatever and a, and a whole lot of people are walking into work and they're all wearing suits, well, they're not all wearing the same suit and it's a uniform, it looks the same, but how they wear it, the proportion of it on them, you know, if there's someone done a, got a natty tie to be a bit cooler and modern or put trainers with their suit instead of, you know, beautiful brogues or, you know, all these things you start learning subtleties of and then there's the bigger picture. What is the world and the intent of the director? You know, how do they want to frame this world? You know, you look at many versions of Wuthering Heights and it can be fully, um, you know, they look at the Lawrence Olivia and it's very romantic and, you know, um, gothic beauty and that. And then you look at um, that wonderful one um, recently. Um, oh, gosh, and please forgive me for getting her name, but it's a much more gritty tale and it's it's – all about atmosphere and the smell of things and and the sound of things and so it's 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 all tapping into what is the vision and how do we support that and then how do we support that with every every element we put on cameras telling a story that's the the basis of things and then you have to work you know you might have a, con a preconception of a character and then you need to start working with your actor and seeing what they bring to or how they envisage their character you know sometimes it'll be as simple as I think he needs a pocket, you know, or um, I want to walk like this and feel weight or, you know, or it's about a transformation of an arc, you know, or, or we'll look at pictures and things. When we did Crimson Peak, I did my process is often like using um, images as a kind of storyboard for myself to show the arc of characters and the themes and you know, to get a colour picture and an arc as we go through the story. And I, I did this for Crimson Peak and, and distilled and worked on images further with Guillermo. And we were in a very lucky place that um, at the time the Toronto Film Festival was on and Jessica Chastain, Mia and Tom Hiddleston were all in town. So they came and it was the, I've, you very rarely get this opportunity in film because it's like hit and run these days, <laughs> you know, you're going so fast. Mm -hmm. And um, they came and they saw it. We discussed all these mood boards and, and you can have many, but it can be one image or a part of an image, or you can all be looking at the same image and everyone will have a different interpretation of it. So it's a very important thing to listen to what other people are seeing and hearing it. And sometimes people will come up with an idea and you go, oh, that's a bit. But what is their intent? What are they trying to achieve? So if I take that idea and instead of moving over my own, oh, I don't like that, how do I make that work in the world? And what is it they're seeing that I need to listen to and put into the image? And, you know, it's it's a it's a huge thing. And some things are simple and others aren't. And, and it's supporting people on a practical level, you know, um, garments that are too heavy or soft, or sometimes actors love that if they're very method, they love the weight of a gown or the sound of it, or, you know, there's, there's countless um, aspects to this. And then there's also a boring thing called budget. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, looking at the pictures on your website, like of Edge of Tomorrow, and, you know, these are elaborate costumes and armor and all this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, you probably have a team of people, but how detailed, how into the weeds do you get about every little piece that they are wearing and looking and how many people might you be working with in a situation like that? Uh, well, you know, a, a big film like 
um, Edge of Tomorrow, it depends on the weight of what you're doing. If you're doing a period film like Crimson Pete, you'll have milliners and, you know, uh, cutters and shoemakers and things. And if you're doing something like Edge of Tomorrow, suddenly you've got engineers and mm. the guys from, um, the, you know, American football coming over with helmets. And, you know, so it's a, you know, every, every job has a, a dis different discipline. So you're always learning and um, creating your department around the needs and journey that you're going through on that and because Edge of Tomorrow is such a technical thing we had to work across many departments with those exosuits because they were fully practical and it was sort of like blind baking. Um, I think they have over 500 parts. Pierre Bahana led the um, props team and the actual manufacturing um, and design process of that and you know there's, there's endless parts of that and then you have to keep testing it out you know uh, one thing I will say working with Tom which was um, amazing is that he was always there you know 24 hours a day you know how do we make this work better how can we get the fit better how can I so we you know your trajectory of learning within those few months and changing it's like putting a sort of fast speed car manufacturing thing mm. into you know I swear some of that work you know when you look at um, some of the blockbusters some of the work that we've done on those things with the, those teams of people and the expertise actually deserves way more credit than some of the other things, you know, that are, mm -hmm. are more standard and visual. You know, nobody understands the, the work that's been done or the engineering and things on that. And that was that was exhausting, um, but it was exciting and it was kind of interesting. And um, and then you kind of go, well, we've all got this uniform and it's a classic example. So, but how does this character wear it and how does that character wear it? And and Doug loves all of that kind of, um, you know, how does everyone, um, like in any army, when you look at the soldiers in Vietnam and that everyone customizes their own gear and work out how they want to carry things and, you know, what, you know, adapts and that. So you have to go into it like that. And then there's the little rituals. I work with the set decorator and we're, you know, in their little... Um, in the barracks and things like that, we're going, well, what few things would they have put in their suitcase from home? And the little rituals that come with that, you know, when I read up on um, D-Day, because, you know, because it's the whole landing on, on the beach of Normandy, it's, we were kind of basically repeating the whole D-Day thing. So I actually got a, there was a wonderful Dorling Kindersley book and, and it labelled all the kit that everyone took with them. And so we kind of recreated that in a modern context. And so working with props and things, we went through all of those elements. We went, well, what is the equivalent in this world that we're building um, that they would take with them into that world? So, mm. yeah, right. and then there's things like special effects and that. So you have to do all these different practical rigs. And, you, you know, on those big projects, you're serving so many people. Um, and when we're on something like Crimson Peak, we're kind of, just in our own little bubble because everyone goes, oh, corsets, I don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, you have, uh, it seems like I look at Edge of Tomorrow followed by Crimson Peak and it seems like it has to be, is it like almost whiplash for you going from uh, <laughs> exoskeleton uh, to uh, beautiful flowing gowns? You know, I, I grew up in the world of opera and that, so that was always my... That's how I always imagined myself as a designer wanting to be and and what I wanted to do, um, and and so and but Edge of Tomorrow was the path I found myself on. And of course, people label you very easily, especially 
and I say this with love in the in the world of Hollywood, they go, oh, they did that, so they can do that again, and they they tend it's a comfort thing. They want to put you in a box, but for like for example, like you you did Pacific Rim with with Guillermo, and then you're like, all right, they can do robots. <laughs> and I I learned to love robot robots. Don't get me wrong, I I went, oh, I love them, you know. I did the whole history of robots and went, oh, I love all of that, love all of that. But, and, and you do have to learn to love every project that you do. I believe you have to fall in love with it. That's our first job because if you don't love it, it's going to show. When it, when it comes to you, whenever you enter the movie-making process, uh, is this even before casting? Like, is this before the people have been chosen for the roles? Or are you coming in with director early on or are you... Uh, talking to the actors like for example are you like is harrison ford like i would really prefer to always be wearing a hat for the most part like (laughs) or or i go go and have another coffee so you're more cheerful before you come in for a fitting um um, (laughs) (laughs) um, he's he's great actually he's fantastic and look look i tell you with with projects like call of the wild and edge of tomorrow both tom and harrison because of who they are were linked to the projects from the very beginning so in terms of the lead actor it worked like that and you know those guys know their stuff and they know how they like to work and you know they they, it's about also about a comfort zone you know can we speak the same language are you going to listen to me Uh, so that's an important part of it but on other shows like Crimson Peak and that the casting was sort of something that was happening as we were going and but because I'm working with you know again we talk about well he's this kind of guy and I'm thinking of this actor or this actor so you you know sometimes it it, it depends on what the project is and and who's linked with it often with the smaller ones the casting comes a bit later and is it possible that you you then see Tom Hiddleston and go actually okay that wasn't what I pictured there but we can adjust to make it really work for him yeah or he comes in and, and when we first met him it was so funny he walks in and he goes hello and his blue eyes lit up the room and all the women fainted <laughs> in the corner it was very you know like uh, you know so, but you know and, and but you sort of but again he came with his ideas and you go oh okay so let's let's move that way and it's funny I had an image he said oh everyone always picks that one for me I said what because it's brooding and romantic <laughs> but 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 it's it's lovely when it's like that and I I always think if I'm stuck there's something I'm not doing that supporting who they are as that character so you know there's always a tricky one there's always a tricky one you know um and then uh you know it's a matter of finding your way around it and then if if you're working and playing well together great things come out of that you know um was there ever a time that you felt super strongly about a design choice maybe disagreeing with the director and or actor and you kind of had to make a case sometimes yeah sometimes and sometimes i've it depends on who you're working with because there's a and the level of trust, because it's all about trust and knowing each other. You know, the more you work together, the more you go, oh, I know what you'll do there. That's fine. I can trust that. Or, you know, I and with um, you know, I really enjoyed that process with Guillermo. Um, you know, there was a lot of that. Although sometimes I'd bounce up to him and goes, no, that's a horrible idea. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and, and I say that. Yeah, when, you, when you have that trust built in, yeah. But, but, but it is like that. You're, you know, you're sharing ideas. And I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I go, what, do, what about this? What about that? And look, the thing I have learned um, of everything, I probably one of my skills is that I'll always have another idea. So you've just mm-hmm. got to be less precious, really, and go, okay, mm-hmm. that didn't fit into the thing. So what else can I come up with? And, and often they're better. Often they're better. You said something and it, it, it hurt my creative heart, but it's, it's ring so true is that ideas become so precious. 
I need to work on that as an artist myself because it's like, man, it's so hard to, to dream up something to be like, I need to see this all the way through. But you have said hard truth to me. No, you, you, you do. And I, I think you've got to you know, wrap that very gently and keep it there. So it's always there for you. And I think you've got to feed yourself. You know, you've got to develop things. And, and it's about... Look, there's a reality of, you know, everyone needs to earn a living and, and, you know, perform well and work well and be professional. And then there's the the moment where you fall in love with your colleagues and there's a chemistry. And it's trying to find those relationships. And it's, you know, there might be one of those projects every few years. And then there's a lot of really great projects, but those really special ones. I mean, some people are lucky enough to build those teams and work in those groups together for a long time, you know, so that you know, you see groups of directors and their designers and that that work for many years, or sometimes they stop working together. You know, it's all. I think you've got. I think that big thing because I think when you have a vision of what it can be, it's very hard to accept it when it's not going where you, where you want it to go. Right. I was wondering when you do a movie that's not period or you know realistic, so something like Mortal Engines or something like Suicide Squad, where do you find or get inspiration for these costumes that are kind of out of this world? <laughs> okay, so with with the process with Suicide Squad, um, you know, I, I got told we were sort of doing, we wanted to bring them back to a kind of reality and we didn't want it in superhero suits and that, but you go, but those characters are so heightened. You know, it's not like we're suddenly doing Coronation Street, darlings. You know, like you can't bring them down to that level. Nobody wants to watch that, you know, with those characters. But when you think of them heightened, um, you know, there's a kind of, it's about sort of just, it's trying to get a tone, isn't it? And a um, question. So in that world, it was, you know, David was interested in, and, you know, he's really interested in the sort of gang culture and the tribes within that. And, you know, he had very strong ideas about this person would come from here or that character would come from there. And then you take it and you go, okay, so, but how do I heighten that? So it's still got a bit more of that, you know, larger than life DC quality to it if, if we can. And then I read all of the comment, uh, the comics. I know people sort of mm. think, why did they do that? And I go, everything we did, we went back to a comic and we could place it. Anything Harley said or did, we wrote down on a board. Anything mm. she said about her relationship with the Joker, we wrote on the board. You know, um, all the different comics had very different iterations of her all the time. She's a dress-up box, you know, of of um, wonderful and nasty surprises. So, you know, there's an, right. an endless list of things. But I always go back to the script or the source material, the books that, that pro, you know, that, that's based mm. on, and I do my homework. And then, you know, other other things around that world that you can read up on and things. So it's, it's about research and things too. And I mm. guess I kind of, I like taking things and go, well, what if, turning them on their head a little bit or every project it might not always be the the dream project but I think if there's a way of finding a way in that you go oh this is a bit exciting I try and justify everything sometimes I overthink it too much possibly (laughs) Kate for the um you do all of this uh immense work it sounds like between the research and just like digging into these these movies sounds like a lot of work but what are the what are the moments i guess in your in your day to day that like okay i tell you mondays are forget mondays you never do anything good on a monday right just telling you now but you Don't know <laughs> yeah but you can be working you know like i do lots and lots of mood boards and as i'm i'm tr- because i'm trying to find 
what it is you know I'm, I'm kind of so it's about distilling all the time editing editing you have all these things thrown up on the board and then you start taking things away does this fit no does this fit no does this oh this belongs in another part of the world so I try and do that do you have just like boxes of fabric? Like, do you like, are you just like pulling out things? I tell you what, I decided long ago that I wasn't going to be that kind of hoarder, but I have <laughs> books. It's a bit of a worry. I uh-huh. actually have half of them in storage, half of them in boxes because I had to make my spare room an office during the, the lockdown. And um, I can't stop with books. Books are everything, everything. I buy old books, vintage books, modern books. Wow. Um I'm a library, so I, I, that's my, my go-to. If you're going to read something for sheer pleasure, not for research, not for an upcoming movie, what kind of book do you just enjoy to read? Oh, you know what? I try and get someone to introduce me to a new book so that I don't keep going down my gothic hole. Um, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> okay. it, it sort of depends. Sometimes I, I, um, I just even pick up a bunch of, um, you know, Angela Carter does a take on fairy stories or, or you know, sometimes it's just, I tell you who I love, Italo Calvino. He's an Italian writer and he wrote a series of short stories called Invisible Cities. And this is a great project for any students or designer as an inspiration mm-hmm. thing. It just frees your mind. And it describes um, Marco Polo sitting down with Kublai Khan and describing the cities mm-hmm. he's visited on his travels. And they're all tiny, like three pages long. And it's, um, But they're not literal cities. They're all visions and dreams of cities. So you get cities of desire, cities of doors, cities of mm-hmm. death. And sometimes the imagery is so amazing. You just go, gosh, this is a simple, and they're all visions of Venice, really. They're just all interpretations of mm-hmm. Venice and the souls that live in it. And I, I love things like that. When the writing is so stimulating and poetic mm-hmm. in that, I go, the writing, the inspiration can come from everything. You know, um, a walk on the beach, you know, uh, is, is you're always thinking, um, and and there's the subconscious underneath the most precious time if you ever get it which I haven't had for many years but you know someone goes oh I've got this project and then but it won't start for a few months or whatever and you go oh, and then you just sit with it it's your baby you've got the script and you just walk I go on big walks on blustery wild beaches and you just let mm. dreams happen you know even if you're not thinking about it there's stuff bubbling to the surface all the time and and you're trying to catch the possibility of it uh, without sounding too wanky you know you're yeah. you're letting it sort of you're you're weaving a whimsical uh, vision right now that i'm loving it i i suppose i am a romantic in a dark um sense and i think um you know in the modern world i've cut you know a lot of introverts have loved the lockdown you know albeit if you can have food on the table and things um but there's something about the stillness and and being able to dream a bit and I think we're missing a little bit of that and and a kind of ritual and and that in our world today a little bit I feel like all those things that we had in the past that brought communities together and we're much more in some ways we're more fragmented and other things like technology have allowed it but it's it's just that possibility of dream time and silence without Mm. noise and things coming and i love that time that sort of oh i'm, I'm about to get on a, a soapbox about how boredom can actually be such a stimulating creative force that uh, we're it's here. amazing Sorry and i avoid but we need you do you need that you really need it and and i had a, a wonderful director i worked with once and 
you know, this whole business of being stuck at your table to show what you do. And he'd go, go off and have a walk or go and have lunch or I'm going to work at the restaurant today. And I'm going, oh, because, yeah, you don't need to be at a desk to be working. And I went, God, that's the first time someone's acknowledged the process that you, mm-hmm. it can be all these different things that help you arrive at the idea. And going back to, you know, how that, that week goes and when do you go, oh, wow, you know, you can have days of pushing at something to, to find it and nothing happens. And then it's one little thing one tiny thing that unlocks it and it's your eureka moment for one you know to be cliche mm. about it and and in my department we all dance up and down and go well, isn't it so exciting it's all gold and silk and uh, you know whatever you know whatever that vision is and um you know um yeah it's just trying to unlock things as you go and that that's anything isn't it any discipline whether you're a writer or um you know you're i think any artist that you look at not that i'm comparing myself to an artist but when you Oh, you are. But, you know, but when you see the process in that, and I think anyone in their work, every job you do or every project you do is a, you know, it's never complete. You take what you've learned from that and Mm. you develop it in the next one or you, you know, you're still finding that thing that you were trying to find in the last one. I don't think it ever finishes, does it? Uh, No, I I think it definitely is a journey along the way. I have to to ask because by the time a movie comes out, you have probably moved to the next one. I mean, at this point in time, I, I assume that the pace is... Uh, I see right now, for example, Chaos Walking is in post-production. Uh, another Lyman film, I believe, right? Yeah, I do love Doug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, when these movies come out, well, not in theaters right now, but in, in, maybe in the future, have you already moved on to taking joy in your next project, in your next uh, Eureka moment? Or are you able to... Uh, sit down and watch a finished product and really uh, find some joy in a, a job well done. No, can't. Never been able to. Oh, really? No, Not at all. Can't. No, can't do it. Can't do it because I just go, oh my God, oh, that. Wow. We put that seam right in the back and it's close up. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So have you not seen any of the movies that you worked on? Look, I have, but I tend to watch them later. Oh, give yourself a little distance from them. Yeah, I do. And then, you know, because the new Lover movies turned up, right? So there's all that falling in love. Oh, I love this movie. And then it, and then somebody puts a budget in front of you and she gets real and then you have to get into it. Right. You don't have to respond to this. Uh, it's more of, I would imagine that in a movie that especially has a lot of VFX and a lot of CGI built into it, I, when, when your work... When it's filming, I'm assuming like that's all there is. There's the actor, there's a bunch of blue screen, and there's your your designs. But the CGI, for example, on some movies, you know, becomes a focal point. For example, you can make it all beautiful, but everyone wants to talk about uh, Buck as a CG dog or whatever. Is that difficult to is that difficult to to deal with when it's something outside of your control, or is that just? It is a little bit because well, it's all about it. It depends again. It's all about the hands that are doing it. But it is weird when you're not seeing a complete um, overall thing. So you're going, I hope I'm right, you know. And all you can do then is trust your director because they're the ones that are controlling all of that ultimately and have the overall right. view. So you have to go, if I do this and you're, you know this is what you want, that the balance of all of it is right. And when I worked with Chris, he it was very clear early on that we weren't doing the gritty, I mean, I love the Reutger Hauer um, Call of the Wild, but it was very clear that that wasn't, Chris is a wonderful, right. childlike, whimsical guy. And, yeah. you know, Lilo and Stitch. An animated movie brought to life almost. It felt totally. Like and as soon as you heard there were the dogs were going to get pancakes when they got to the end of their 
journey and stuff. You go, okay, so we're, we're doing Dumbo for dogs, really. Or, you know, and he, he always, one of the things that, but the thing that um, was the tap-in for me that I really loved was um, Chris and I both have a love of Evan Dill's work. You know, um, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, E-Y. V-I-N-D, um, beautiful American painter. And he did all the early stills for Maleficent, you know, the, the original Disney movies. Mm, and then does all these yeah. slightly folk folkloric interpretations of American landscapes. And and really what Chris was wanting was kind of a Paul Bunyan folktale, you know, um, right. with that kind of spirit. And I go, okay, like you say, we're doing a, a an animated version, really, for want of a better word. And how do we make that right and poetic and but there's so many ingredients you're and we're only a tiny cog and something like that with something like crimson you have much more control over your environment and and things sure it's all about language really you know it's it all depends on who you're working with whether they all agree that when i worked on crimson we had a very clear these are the rules of the world right and that that's how i'm used to working and when I work from a more theatrical point of view and that these are these are the rules of the world, this is the colour palette, you know, and we all stuck to that and and this is you know, it's 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 all about tone, you know, one tiny thing can shift the tone and it goes back to what we were saying, when you have a vision of something and sometimes it can surprise you and be even more marvellous and wonderful than you thought and other times you go, Ooh <laughs> you know. But but it's 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 such a it, it does make it interesting, you know, and, and I think um, I love the use of some, it's interesting where it's going now, technically, and, and I love the way um, in Life of Pi and um, the CG was used as a character or to enhance things mm, and that, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I love the way if you can use your technologies in a way that is still part of the storytelling and that, because it's, it's, I, th- I think more and more, I don't know, but just as an audience member myself, I love the mystery of what if and what's behind that door and not necessarily seeing everything. And I think we we're so, we have so much, just having that empty space left to imagine things and and um, is kind of a wonderful thing too, you know? It's basically what Crimson Peak is to me, is an empty space that I'm too scared to look at. <laughs> it's a long, dark car- corridor with those giant thorn-like. Um, I'm not. Um, that was an, that was enough in the tra- that was enough in the trailer that I was like, nope, I'm a wimp. I can't. <laughs> I think you'll be fine. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure Stephen King said it was like absolutely terrifying. And if Stephen King <laughs> thinks it's terrifying, I don't know. I don't know. My daughter wasn't terrified. I think, you know, it depends on what terrifies you. Uh, she's, she's probably brave and I'm not. Well, she, look, when, when she was growing up, I was doing a production of Lucia and I, I'd learnt taxidermy. Please don't hate me, animal lovers, because I was, I was trying. They were only birds that were dead from roadkill. But I was trying to make wings for hats, doing my own millinery, and I had all these bird wings all hung up in the bathroom, drying in borax. And, oh, mummy's just doing her work again. Oh, wow. my. My poor That's kid, terrifying. dead dolls, broken dolls, and dead birds' wings. Yeah, she's she's wow. <laughs> just a normal, just a normal day, just a normal bathroom decor. Kid, I'm wondering is is there a genre of movie or a kind of movie or a topic that you would love to do before the end of your career? I like to do. There's, I've got so many different things that I'd like to do um, and different it's about finding new languages all the time I mean you know you said it earlier you go oh you did Edge of Tomorrow and then you do Crimson Peak and I I think it's 
that you get hungry to try something new in a different genre and it's finding your people and having the chemistry and it doesn't matter what the project is what I have learned is that I could go oh I just want to do beautiful frocks but I could end up doing something that doesn't interest me at all that's more like a coronation street you know that wouldn't interest me a, a you know a right. literal thing I think what I've learned about myself is it's I love the world building so anything that's world building is what I'm interested in and then it doesn't matter whether it's gritty whether it's period whether it's deeply romantic it's about the world building inventing languages it could be very restrained I mean people don't believe it when they've seen Crimson Peak they go oh but that's so baroque and full-on I go yeah but Edith Murrow was so <laughs> not you know like I, I have many hats it's about serving the piece but I do love the world building I love that you know I was influenced by films like you know Brazil um you know, all those sorts of films when I was younger growing up, all the Derek Jarmans and the Peter Greenaways and, you know, the 80s were full on. And But they, they sort of created all these sort of worlds. And I, I loved it as an audience. I was looking at those films now and going, gosh, I wonder how that pace would go into some of today's more modern audiences and that. And, you know, I love um, uh, what's Alphonse Cuaron's latest film, that beautiful story he told um, about his own um, city in Mexico. I can't remember the title because oh, I've got, but, but you know, I know but, but I, but I, I, you know, that's a beautiful I'm world, you know. Then it's just, but it's his dream through his childhood. It's not a, you know, it's seen from that perspective. You know, all those, it's about the perspective and things. And actually, I just watched, um, and this is not to sound wanky in that, but I watched La Jete, um, which was that sort of um, '60s experimental film about a man that goes on time travel he's a prisoner and he's put through time travel and that and I go wow that influenced you know vertigo and 12 monkeys and all of that world and I don't know I just I just love stimulation I love working with bright stimulating people and being challenged people go no try that again and and let's go on a journey and discover something so but it doesn't always you know it depends I don't know I'd love lots of things yeah I feel like I could just listen to you tell stories about uh, all of the experiences <laughs> you, you've had. Um, but we will definitely be like, I will just be looking at these different movies that come out in the future. I'm going to follow your filmography closely and be like, oh, look, it's a new, a new world that she was probably able to walk on a beach and dream about. Yeah, or you get there and you've got three weeks to put, you know, um, 50 costumes together because it's dark. Oh. And... <laughs> You're running on set. Yeah, it's chaos running, that. not walking. <laughs> <laughs>